0: Hello, my friends. Welcome back to another episode of The Oscillator Stone. In this episode, Layman Pascal and I talk a little bit about our upcoming course, The Teratogenic Mystique, with our good friend, Dr. Greg Henriquez, creator of the Unified Theory of Knowledge. Now, Henriquez and I have had quite a few conversations about how accidentally esoteric his deeply researched, scientifically grounded theory has become. And it's getting weirder all the time. And Layman, as you may have heard, has dabbled in the fine art of the occult since he was around 12 years old. So, get ready to hear what happens when a Neo Bard, a psychologist, and a Layman Pascal get together to talk about the mysterious, undefinable, and all-pervading clusterfuck of everything there is. Magic. In November, I'll be running a three-day course called Eldritch Wonders, which will be coming in the Age of Unreality. We'll dive into all sorts of practices to explore themes of time, manifestation, invocation, and ancestral devotion, all for the purpose of examining what I find to be a rather pertinent inquiry. What kind of culture would survive the apocalypse? learn more about it check out the show notes and feel free to send me a message at flindersign at gmail.com if you're interested we can also set up a one-to-one call if you want to ask me questions to my face or my virtual face whatever booking link for that is also in the show notes for this episode i featured three songs from a spotify playlist i made called songs from the other world First up is from this really cool band that I had the pleasure of performing with years ago. I'm not in this recording, but there's a video of me dancing to this song somewhere on YouTube if you're really that interested. They're called Cookie Tongue, and you can find them at the link in the show notes on Bandcamp. This song's called Schism Lip.
1: Ten my silly sip Give me a sip And drowsy the scrims
2: It right. was my name. I love it, but it's also awful. But it's awful in the right kind of way, I think. So when we were doing Consilience, um, Bonnie was like, maybe we'd call it something like iatrogenic soteriology. Yeah. And I'm like, no, that is absolutely the name. And then I fought everybody else to make sure that was the name. I think a similar thing about teratogenic mystique. It's like right on the edge of what's recognizable as language. But teratogenesis is, you know, uh, becoming a mutant or becoming a monster. Mm. And so the idea of the course is how does, A, the monstrous and the magical work together, and B, how do both of those operate uh, uniquely within the wisdom field and offer something that you don't find in the more tidy realm of, New cognitive science, Buddhism, and esoteric <laughs> Christianity, so to speak.
3: Right, right. No. Uh, right. How do we, how do hey, we, let's messy, let's
4: messy this thing house. up a
3: bit, huh? Exactly. I think that's what we're thinking. <laughs> uh, great. Uh, lovely. Well, you know, this is the uh, right. I'm glad you clarified uh, because I was on the other side of the edge of language until you did, but that makes good sense. <laughs> and I really, you know, my own journey in relationship to this opens up all sorts of weird associations across a multiplicity of different uh, monsters and magic, as it were. So uh happy to be part of the conversation.
2: Well, let's uh, check it with Scout here. Scout, what is this course and why are you doing it?
0: <laughs> Great questions that I do not have the answers to, <laughs> but I'll do my best. Well, um, I, I like to use the term weird sometimes as interchangeable with magic because magic can refer to a s- actual system that you apply as well as experiences that you might have. And weird sort of, I would say, more points to the experiences that one might have and the felt sense of uh, whatever you might be evoking with whatever practices. Um, but, you know, I, I would say I'm doing this course in part because of its... Uh, openness to the unknown Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's kind of it's centered around exploration of things that I would say particularly in our culture and like the post-postmodern uh-huh. uh weird western industrialized post-industrialized world um we're not very equipped to handle and i would say um a lot of people their tendency and you know i'm not pathologizing this per se uh, <laughs> but i don't think it's exactly what what we should be doing here. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of people are disconnected from uh, their ancestral roots, particularly in places like the Americas. Uh-huh. Um, and to go back to some sort of traditional framework doesn't exactly feed, you know, what, what it is that they're needing out of uh-huh. out of ritual practice, out of spirituality. And mm-hmm. so with this course, it being so experimental in nature and sort of drawing from so many different um, different cultures and different uh philosophies and it's it's basically just a clusterfuck of all the things that you can possibly think of. Um, and I think that's good. I think that's a really good way of uh becoming inspired and actually creating our own traditions and practices yeah. out of the traditional and and even maybe out of the modern and postmodern as well so yeah. that we can um be more authentic in how we're practicing, you know. I mean, I went to a ritual practice practice retreat recently uh, a couple days ago and it drew from many different traditions but ultimately the the rituals that we free time were completely emergent just coming from the instinctual and intuitive parts of ourselves and uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that these these are natural inherent human qualities these practices mm-hmm. of, of magic uh, the connection with what I would call the weird mm-hmm. um. Or the otherworldly. And uh, it's really just about reminding people that it's already inside of them, as opposed to, you know, teaching them something new or or Mm -hmm. initiating them into some traditional framework. So that's very exciting to me. It's at the Mm -hmm. core of my own practice. And I like doing it with other people because then I can steal their secrets and their uh, (laughs) and their names. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> I think you got a great subtitle here of the clusterfuck of everything you can think of. So I think that would be, uh, nice. I vote for that as your subtitle. <laughs> That's, right. That's what we're going to call this video. Okay.
0: <laughs> you better not be joking. I, I I'm counting a- on you. <laughs>
2: Uh, I think there's a really interesting thing here about weird. Like weird means sort of the eldritch and the uncanny aspects of uh, a trans pagan occultism in one sense, but it also has this contemporary sense of being like an ethos and an aesthetic and a Mm -hmm. vibe. And that vibe might be pointing to something really significant because when we come to things like rituals and we want, we're doing this course a little bit like it's a ritual and a container and not just a course. Mm -hmm. But I think ritual can be approached from two different sides. One is the we've inherited this masterpiece of participatory movement whereby we access the imaginal patterns of the world through a shared enactment. Mm -hmm. And the other one is this sort of um, bottom-up sensibility that we are going to improvise structures that are sourced in aspects of reality Mm -hmm. that we can't quite cognitively track down with the front of our minds. But in both cases the mood can range wildly. The mood Uh can be, oh, I'm indifferent. I just want to see what's going to happen. Uh The mood can be, oh, I really appreciate and honor this beautiful ceremony. Uh Or it can be, this is really weird. What the hell is Uh going on here? And I think that kind of mode um, feels like viscerally it points to a certain openness in our sense-making procedure. We go, What the fuck is this? Is this really happening? Am I, am I doing it the way it should be done? I don't know quite what's happening. Are the elements of reality more than I think they are or not? Those sort of questions and that sort of uh, ambient feeling. Seems to me really essential to make certain kinds of magical effects occur for people through ritual participation. And I'm curious where where does weirdness inhabit the Utah stack?
3: <laughs> well, that's this is beautiful. Um okay. Uh so the Utah stack, uh, and I'll 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 just for convenience, I'll make some parallels with. Um, uh, Bard Alexander Bard. So the Utah stack immediately is embracing uh, different vectors of knowing, okay? Uh, epistemological vectors. So it's going to embrace a science vector, and it's going to be the tree of knowledge to embrace that science vector, okay? Um, but that, but that's not everything. That's a particular frame of reference. Uh, it's a useful frame. It's a constraining frame and a skeptical frame. It's a logos frame to use uh, the Bard slash Greek term. Uh, but that's not it. There's also our pathic structures, our felt unique experience of being that's going to be held by the Iquod coin. Okay? And then there's the orienting into and the pathos, and then the orienting to mythos all underneath an ethos, where mythos then is represented by the tree of life, uh, not tree of knowledge, but the tree of life, and it's sort of getting in touch with a resonant frequency, a story that tells both is and ought collectively. Um, and also the, underneath the sun god, you know, elephant sun god. Um, as I've told many people many times, and I think in this context, the idea that I would be talking about a fucking elephant sun god, you know, twenty fifteen years ago is insane, um, because I was constrained. Um, by science as like delivering what it can and then some weak humanism on top of that. Uh, I didn't have a deep appreciation for how constraining the scientific knowledge system is relative to our human embodiment and why we need different vectors of knowing. Um, I over-exaggerated propositional constraint and underappreciated appreciated uh, perspectival, participatory, natural animism. Okay? And I think we need... I do think we need scientific constraint or else you get into all sorts of land of woo stuff at some level. So you need that as a constraint, but that is just a constraint. It's not the, that's not what is by any stretch. Um, I'll give you a couple of embodied experiences recently that, that speak to why I think this is super important. So I was just at France uh, where we did a little scholar retreat. OK, uh, and there were guides there. And this is for the Respond Network. And I got to see John Berbeke. That That's cool. Uh, first time in person you know, after all these years on two dimensional world. Uh, but the thing I want to emphasize with regards to that um, is, is that there was a Francois, one of the scholars, was a, a deeply um, uh, enriched uh, by the indigenous and, and knowledgeable about indigenous uh, healing uh, and other indigenous practices. So we opened up the ceremony um, as a ceremony uh, with an ancient drum uh, repetition. Um, There was a bowl with water and flowers. We each held a flower. We put the flower in. Uh, That bowl carries significance, water, significance, air. uh, The the elements were then woven throughout um, that I thought was really cool to open. And then what was very meaningful was the way it was coalescing the end. So that was how we closed the ritual. Um, and there was a lot of symbolism with leaves and stuff like this. And I was just amazed at the participatory perspectival animistic flavor um of and how absent that is in so much of my life um and how much I appreciated that the way he crafted that brought us some sort of gestalt and our primate and hominid primate systems that just saw us in nature together. Um, doing symbolic things um, with the water with the flowers with fire um and and I I was just like man my life my socialization system is just devoid of that okay um, so that that's one thing It's like why where is that and why is that scene you know why was I raised in a way that initially would cause me to be like mm, what are we doing there as opposed to oh my god mm-hmm. what, what are we doing there <laughs> right?
0: Greg, Greg, I'd love to follow up yeah. with what you're saying about uh, animist practice, because I think in the frameworks that you're speaking about, scientific, rational, mm-hmm. and them being constrained, the re- what makes them good at what they do is their capacity able to separate things and animism is a is based in most animisms are based in a relational ontology in fact most people who uh traditionally practice animism most indigenous cultures who are animistic in nature uh i'll use shinto as an example uh shinto is not about belief it is about action and so i think part of the conflict there is that it is inherently something that cannot be rationalized it is something that must be done and something that must be felt and because we can't always fit the things that we do and feel into neat little boxes it can be very hard to uh to re-include that kind of value of felt sense and you use the word participatory knowing which i know is yeah, part of Verveki's framework, which I very, very loosely understand, so I won't talk too much about it. I'd actually love for you to to bring us into that, the, the 4P, and how that relates to magic. Um, but it's primarily, this animism is primarily about being, and it's about describing not the self or the other, but the relationship between them yep. uh, as if there were all that it, that it, there is. Because according to the the uh, animist ontology, that is all there is. There is no way to, to really separate things. Now, if we can um, if we can kind of, I'll say, I'll use the word pretend here. If we pretend things are separated, we can get a lot of insights. And that's where a lot of scientific insights have come from, from what if we could separate these details from each other and what do they look like on their own? Um, too much of that, I would go so far as to say, would lead to delusion. And I think that's kind of part of why uh, new religions are being born right now or old religions are being returned to right now on a mass scale. Neo-animism is extremely popular right now. And I think it's because people know that culturally we have been uh, blinded to a lot of truths as a result of not being willing to be in relationship or being afraid to be in relationship, like seeing the leaf as a thou, seeing a wa- the water as a she or a he or a they or whatever have you. Uh, giving personhood to these different entities is very challenging for us because we're afraid we'll be labeled as crazy. Um, but again, kind of bringing this back to the course, we invite you to be crazy here. Like there's a wisdom in crazy that we have forgotten to include and this goes this can be scaled up to the level of culture and how we reject uh, certain people with certain mental illnesses. We project villainy onto them. Um, we pathologize. We use um, folk psychological language like narcissist and codependent um when we actually don't really know what those words mean in the in the uh, the sort of non-psychological wor- world there's a lot of psychologization of these things that really are just actually normative if you think about it from uh, a human evolutionary biology perspective and a cognitive science perspective a lot of these experiences are are normative uh the ones that we label crazy and so yeah just to say again we invite your crazy <laughs> hey I'm glad
3: because uh, I feel home here. And then, then all of me can be homed. Uh, mm, and, that's uh, good because there's definitely plenty of you know plenty of rationality and plenty of crazy. Uh, and that's like, <laughs> it's not a bad dialectic, right? Um, so yeah. So I mean, you know, let's here's my basic pitch. Um, we didn't have a decent scientific ontology, um, you know, and and what I'm doing, like if you take Wilbur's frame. You know, we have the science on the right hand side, but the tree of knowledge now gets us into an inter-objective systems view uh, that gives us a holistic view. And and although I'll be playful here, and it basically says, hey, it's all an energy information field, all right? In fact, you know, the mantra for Tuesday, in, in which is Energy Information Day, and, and you talk, I have my days of the week now, you know, um, is I'm an energy information singularity. Okay. And that's a, and it's a, and the I-quad coin then represent, and what am I saying there? I'm like, it's a complete multiplicity, singularity, energy information field all the way down and all the way up to create all sorts of relationalities. Okay. Non. And we know from like literally from the hardest sciences we have in quantum field theory, there's a weird ass non-local entanglement structure at the bottom. Right. Um and yes, so all of a sudden, you know, what was old ass, right? Old ass Newtonian mechanics, shit. Nobody does that anymore. That knows what the hell they're talking about. Okay. Now, exactly does that mean quantum can consciousness and a lot of things that need to be sorted out complexity? But the field is open, folks. Okay. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, for a lot of weirdness in a in a cool way, uh, and I would say, and, and I that your rational mind better be open uh, for that because there's a lot of weird shit. Uh, that we don't know. So anybody's putting strong, you know, mechanical constraints and saying, "No, we know that this is a bunch of billiard balls." I mean, that's they did that for 200 fucking years, and they were wrong. Um, and so, you know, let's make up and make sure we're uh, the science is wrong at that level, uh, if that's how people are operating from. And of course, that's John, John, and I, and Layman, and you, and all, all the sort others. Of, yep. You know, that's pretty clear. Um. The other thing that I want to be very clear on, again, going to Wilbur's stuff in some ways is sort of like, okay, we can I can actually nail the science side. And actually, I have a periodic table of behavior that's upper right quadrant and the tree of knowledge that allows us to see the whole. And then we come over and then we're going to create a we space, our justificatory collective narratives, uh, which are these mythos that we live in. And these mythos are our collective lies. And they tell us what is and ought. And one of the great tragedies of the, and Nietzsche calls this out, of course, one of the great tragedies of once you killed God, <laughs> what did you replace him with, right? And we have to then reconstruct our the field of value, uh, to use a cosmoerotic term, humanistic term, what is the field of value that we are situated in? Uh, and we need to tell that story collectively. And the animistic traditions that you are pointing to open us up to a potential mythos that we should be... Uh, We definitely need to uh, re-coalesce around. Um, And the last thing I'll say, there's a subjective unique portal for each of us. uh, And and it is the intersection of that pathic subjective, that collective mythos, the logos. um, And all of those are different languages. uh, They're different epistemologies. uh, And the human existence has got to wrestle with and come to terms with those different kinds of elements. And any collective society is going to be healthy, um, needs all of that. So we need, we definitely need some weird fucking magic uh, to counterbalance any goddamn reductive mechanical bullshit that we've been living off of, at least in many aspects of society for way too long.
2: All right. So if I think across what you guys were just saying, I'm, I'm thinking a, the human being is not a billiard ball either, right? That we are a plurality. We have to understand ourselves as that, but we have to understand ourselves as a a plurality that instantiates itself through other people and through its extended environment. So the animism is like transjective parts work, right? And (laughs) it's a model of the self, which is in some ways coming back to the monstrosity theme. It's like a, an octopus Mm -hmm. more than it's like a billiard ball. Mm -hmm. It's spread out and it's strange. And unless those parts are all brought in, they're going to haunt us with the monstrosity of the excluded shadow. Uh, And I think there's something about the quality of that encounter with the distributed, decentralized, necessarily shadow-laden elements of a transjective animism uh, that opens up the symbolic landscape, right? That your elephant sun god, it's not uh, arbitrary that the elephant sun god is fucking insane, that the threshold of fucking insane has to be crossed in order to activate the realm in which the elephant sun god can epitomize a whole mythic architecture that can empower you and offer a new kind of symbolic landscape to people. So I think there's something about the monstrous itself that animism brings forward that's necessary for us to qualitatively encounter in order to activate a new sacred landscape. God,
0: that's fucking brilliant. I love that. Um, Lame, and... can i ask layman a question actually uh because this this feels as though it relates to and this is something you know more about than me and that's why i want to ask you um the lucanian triad of uh of you know the real being this like terrifying unfathomable thing and then the imaginary being this sort of mediary between that uh the real which is this unfathomable terrifying thing and then what uh what we experience in our everyday lives. And, um, you know, seeing the imaginal not as like a just a, 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 we we have to be careful not to be reductive when it comes to explaining animism. I think it's inevitable as like thought centered people to kind of say like, to, to reduce it to some sort of psychological framework. But uh, I see it as a, uh, you know, we're, there's a part of us that mediates between the, unknown and unknowable vastness of our of our world and and our larger universe and uh, the the things we can't comprehend we do experience and the imaginal is is less of a a a mirror reflecting you back at yourself and more of a of a medium of a language of an exchange between ourselves and this great other that um, we can really only uh, experience as objects or even hyper objects as these these uh these large beings um that we can experience parts of if we allow ourselves to experience parts of them and and there's there's wisdom in that that you can't get from psychology or the hard sciences
2: well the way i imagine it and i was thinking about this a little bit this morning because i was sketching out what i thought of as the nine worlds of the monstrous to be part of our course material and Mm. the the impossible of the lacanian real i think is is one of those worlds uh, you know, here we are, we find ourselves within Lacan's notion of the symbolic. We, we inhabit a world where things have identities. Uh, they're discrete enough to have relationships and we can know them. But then there's this reality that is outside of our ability to symbolize. And from within our position, there's an imaginal veil over that reality, over the threshold of contact between the real and the symbolic. And it makes the real look terrifying. It gives it the form of the monstrous. But if we go to that threshold and inhabit that spot, which is the spot where you can optimize the transition of the unknown into the known Hmm. by maintaining your maximum Uh, proximity to the unknowable that cannot be moved into the symbolic, Mm -hmm. then you have the ability in that position to, I think, generate new imaginal forms that facilitate the movement of the unknown into the known. But that's a spot right at the edge of the unknowable that looks from the outside as if it has the imaginal position of the rejected of the monsters. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that
0: helps. (laughs) Yeah, that was the perfect response. That's yeah, all uh, uh, well,
3: and and so uh, I'll I'll see if I can riff off that, but a sec by going back to the octopus, okay, uh, and and embodying here both propositional, perspectival, and participatory uh, uh, the imagery. So one of the ways to think about the brain, okay, is a skin turned inward. All right. In fact, the way it develops, is sort of like the skin turned inward, and I just turned my brain into an octopus. <laughs> Okay. And now it's flowing through my skin into the tentacles of the world around me and wrapping itself in energy information and gathering up that energy information feel. And now all of a sudden, my eyes are the center of the monster with eight tentacles to give us a nine (laughs) marked monster. Okay. Um, And playing with that kind of structure. Playing with what that does, embodiment-wise. Playing with what it does in relationship to conceptual, um, enacting that. We could see if we were sitting around with eight other people in a room right now, you could just start to feel your way into being a tentacle in that structure. Um, to me, those are the kinds of things that we need to be opening up far more than we do, and that's why I'm glad we're out the conversation.
0: Mm -hmm. one of my teachers is uh josh shry who does the emerald podcast and uh on a recent uh retreat that he was running for his students uh he gave us this practice of listening with our whole bodies Mm -hmm. and so what is it like to listen through the skin what is it like to listen through the feet or through the hands um and it really coincides with my concept of uh Not my concept, but something that I've termed thinking with the whole body, which sees, you know, we I think the average person thinks all the thinking happens in the brain. But I would uh, challenge people to feel thinking in their whole body, like how does the hand think and how is that different from how the foot thinks or how the eyes think? And, um, you know, this this practice is. um, I think kind of trying to get us to to fall into this this uh, experience of, of what I would call the extended body to so the body beyond the body. And uh, my Bhutto teacher, Jacqueline Shannon has us um, uh, every, Time we, we dance together before we dance, we do an hour long rolling meditation. We lay on the floor and we imagine ourselves beneath the floor. And then we kind of extend our bodies and expand our consciousness. We're blindfolded the whole time. We extend our bodies to try to sense the other people in the room and what they might need. And then we slowly start to rise. And as we rise, we try to find each other without being able to see. And so it forces you to, to kind of feel consciousness as being this thing that your whole body is imbued with, but also extends outward from it, um, and possibly extends inward, um, toward you. And, uh, you know, these kinds of practices are kind of like, uh, what's really important about this practice in particular with the, with the extended body is that you are, um, you are Doing what's called dual processing so you're doing top down and bottom up it's not just getting into your body and mm-hmm. out of your head because yep. it's it's understanding how the head exists everywhere yep. um, and yeah I was, I was just throwing that in
3: well this is i mean so both for cognitive science uh, you know john's tradition and you talk um basically both make this point. You talk does it with the four E's that John wants to actually extend a bunch of other E's with, but all the the whole idea is is that, you know, c- cognition isn't just in the brain, but it's this embedded, embodied, extended and acted um, uh, element. U talk does this slightly differently, just basically says, hey, we've fucked up our language structures and actually what we should be starting with the property of mindedness, you know, and mindedness is the whole animal in the agent arena relationship and and that is and that's essentially for a cognitive science view of mind which basically means it's the dynamic complex entirety of the system uh that you need to be considering yes you can drop inside the nervous system and say various things but you don't pluck out mind that's not the property any more than you would try to find life in the property of a molecule life exists in the cell as its complex adaptive system mindedness exists in the sensory motor looping structures that we engage in. And then we build mental models off of those sensory motor looping structures. That's what we often call the mind. Um, and then we talk about that in terms of self-conscious mind and justification and things like that. But the point of it is, is that what this is showing, as far as I'm concerned, is a misconstrual of mindedness. And it's a waking us up Two-mindedness uh, and what's available to us, and to go to John's point, you know, John is super big on participatory knowing—the four P's. So, just propositional—that's type it out through language to make meaning statements. Then you have perspectival—that's through the sensory perceptual landscape to be able to see what's salient um, and pull things out and be able to take perspective. Procedural, that shit that you can do that are skills that are either automatic, like to learn to tie your shoe, or more skill based stuff, like doing procedure, you know, like surgery or something. And then fundamentally is participatory. The participatory is the agent arena relationship, it's the felt sense of the identity relative to others in the world. So, what you're describing there, uh, Scout, was what your person's doing is you're fundamentally breaking and reforming your participatory relational identity. With, with the the landscape of the of the dance floor with the landscape of each other each system then is given an idea uh, an invitation to feel your way into a new participatory landscape and then enact and embody that um that kind of stuff we never did in school in any way that was like guided you know there was no uh, there was nothing along those lines um but that's uh, the argument from an evolutionary perspective at a propositional level is like actually folks that's what we did. <laughs> <laughs> before we talked, that's actually how we understood the world, the world by the way. <laughs> so maybe we mm-hmm. should you know, get back to that some and get whole again, for the
2: love of God. By the way, Scout, tell Josh to get in contact with me, because I did this uh, recording for a thing on the West Coast a couple of months ago about AI as the beginning of the age of sorcery. And then everybody who heard it was like, oh, have you also heard the Emerald has a recording about that? So, like in my mind, Josh and I have a similarity on that topic. I'd love to interview him about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an interesting moment with uh, the new joint point because it seems like the new technology opens up a realm that is, uh, for better or worse, describable in magical terminology. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a certain sense in which you're going to be able to. Use your voice to interact with non-human intelligences to restructure the nature of a world whose fundamental reality becomes increasingly derealized for everyone. Um, that's a very interesting situation to be in. Totally. But I'm curious from Greg's point of view, whether whether you see a parallel emergence between the cultural technological eruption that's going on. And this shift that I, I think I hear everyone talking about between learning to recognize a split between the inner and the outer and then learning to unrecognize that split, right? In the like, trans yep. split world, yep. uh, is that trans split world different than the pre-split world, a kind of psychology that goes nicely with the fifth joint point?
3: Lovely. Yeah. And the short answer is yes, hopefully wisely. (laughs) And what I mean by that is we have the whole global digital, global tech structures and all the crazy technologies that that, of course, is going to afford, which is a horizon that is very difficult to say and may just cause us to go crazy. I'm scared about that. So the dangerous horizon of that is the the vision of the shit. Fifth joint point. If if you're gonna if you're gonna dig it, that's digital identity global solutions. Dig it. Um, and what that means is we have to figure out a way to get our human identity in right relation. Uh, and we need we need both propositional narrative and embodied narrative ways of being that are up to the task. And I think a transjective inside. Out, I mean, uh, a slogan in Utah is inside out, outside in, forward. And and that's the transjective toward wisdom is basically hey. I'm an energy, information, material object, living organism, minded animal, cultured person in a digital world, inside and out. Right. I mean, you can see me on the outside, and you can I can see me on the inside, and all of that stack is now arranged, and that uh, that's a metaphysics that's much more available to us. I hope through these kinds of elements, uh, they will erase a lot of the reductive mechanical materialism and the split between science subject and humanities, uh, or collective wisdom elements. Um, And that's what I think is absolutely needed in the kind of knowledge systems and the kind of embodiment systems and relational systems uh, that is going to, if the fifth joint point is going to move toward the third attractor, um, that's the kind of structure I'm envisioning we need, for sure.
2: I'd like to bring up coincidence, because There's a here's one of the elements of the monstrous, which is uh, a reasonable person has to confront the people who want to talk about magic and coincidence and synchronicity and gods. And there's something horrible about these people. But that's a horribleness we have to risk in order to press the boundaries of what we understand to be the actual cognitive nature of reality. Okay, so we bring coincidence back in and we say to ourselves something like there's there's a language there, right? There's a different kind of living whereby you feel yourself to be informed by coincidence and feel like you can exert some kind of agency through coincidence, right? And this is almost the definition of what magic is. Hold on. Um, so It's not really a question there. I just wanted no, to- No, well, uh, what's weird is shit, actually. actually. I'm going to
3: stack so. this on coincidence. First, coin- <laughs> incidents okay you know I'm good with my I like my little uh, language this the self coin structure incidents with other um as I've been I've been meaning to bring this up because I want to make sure I bring it up so it's a perfect segue because uh, we were I, there are two things that I mentioned about a while ago that I one was this ritual that I talked about at the scholars thing and here's the other thing that I had a top 10 uh synchronicity event this past week in my life okay that I'll share here uh and and at the level of How the fuck do you make sense out of this? Okay, and I and and I'm gonna. So here's this basic story. Um, I finished reading this the book uh, Why Buddhism Is True by Robert Wright. Okay, Uh, Robert Wright wrote is an evolutionary psychologist. He wrote The Moral Animal in 1994. This is a very meaningful book in me because I was just discovering the problem of psychotherapy. And I needed a big picture view. Evolutionary Psych was coming along, The Moral Animal. It would actually set me up to develop the justification hypothesis as justifying persons and primates. You see a moral animal. A very influential book in me, in my history. And, and therefore, Robert Wright plays a pretty interesting and special role. I never reached out to him, never contacted him, never did anything, you know, whatever. That just, just happened 30 years. But then I read this book, Why Buddhism is True, Okay. And I was explaining, you know, in my own journeys, getting very clear on the difference between the witness consciousness and the self. John and I did a lot of stuff on the self, and then how do you observe versus how do you grip? That was on my mind for a whole host of different reasons. Um, uh, my uh, life partner gave me this little cup called Just Red Rim It. The little red rim is a symbol for witness consciousness on your identity. So I'd gotten that, uh, and I was writing a book, finishing this book. So here's the here's the coincidence that's weird as fuck. OK, so I'm typing. I come up. What do I want to do? I am supposed to do a blog today. It's like, oh, I want to do it on witness consciousness and the self. And I just read Robert Wright's book. I'm going to use his framing in relationship to this. I type out this blog. OK, for, it takes an hour or whatever. And I, I've been checking my email. I go finish typing up. I'm about ready to send the blog to Masia. OK, within three minutes of me having go to then send the blog, an email had come in from this guy. Aaron, and he's like, hey, dear Dr. Enriquez, I'd like to introduce myself and I'd like to make a connection to you and Robert Wright. Robert Wright says "They just wrote these books and he did this and he's got a big history view. The two of you should really get together because I think the two of you would have a lot of powerful things to talk about. I'm 99% sure no one has ever reached out to me before to ever talk about Robert Wright. Okay. Um, and this, yet he's been an important figure at some level in the background of my consciousness uh, for 30 years. The li- what the is the likelihood, right? That I would be within three minutes of me finishing a blog. My first blog I ever wrote on Robert Wright of an important figure that I never reached out to who had an important, you know, experience on both witness consciousness and the self <laughs> and within three minutes of me finishing opening up before I send it to Massey to double check it to be published this in this has come into my consciousness and said hey you should draw a line between you two I'm gonna come in as Aaron and I'm gonna draw a line between you and Robert Wright. okay now that is coincidence I mean that that, that is like huh you know like okay yeah my skeptical mind can always say well one in 300 million happen you know whatever you want to stick on it But my pathic mind is obviously impacted, right? There's a a grid, there's a felt energy in the world that is lining that shit up. I can't help but my participatory identity feel that. And certainly at my coincidence level, my coin level, I'm fine with this. That's weird, cool, and -hmm. and maybe the universe works in mysterious ways. Uh, So that's my embodied story of recent coincidence and connecting witness-functioning self. And there's a weird world out there. And the pathic systems uh, and mythic symptoms, I think, of our knowledge system should be open to them as long as we don't go off the deep end. But, man, that's cool shit for me.
0: I'd like to... um... I'd like to talk a little bit about the relationship between transrationality and, uh, and, and our relationship to the coin, uh, in terms of the process, not just that the coin represents the self, but the process that the self goes through. Um, transrationality. Which is kind of what we're wanting to explore in uh, the course of the teratogenic mystique, but um in a more of a shall I say deconstructed way, uh-huh. where like transrationality can sometimes be used as a bypass to try to like dismiss pre-rationality as not being necessary anymore. Uh-huh. Um, whereas I see it as sort of this loop where you go, you know, you have to descend into pre-rational in order to uh, bring it through rational to become transrational, and um, this process of turning the coin, I feel, is not only uh, representative of that, but it's um, it's. I think that your perspective on coincidence, or I prefer to use the term synchronicity, um, is transrational in nature because you have an openness to the possibility that um, there is divine orchest- orchestration. You neither. Uh, you do not claim that there is divine orchestration, but you do not dismiss that there could be divine orchestration. I think of uh, Jason Ananda Josephson. storm uh, wrote uh, the book called metamodernism, the future of theory um, in which he talks about sort of how do we do theory in metamodern ways. He talks about Zeteticism, which is uh, skepticism turned on itself Mm -hmm. uh, or he phrases it as uh, we cannot always know when we know. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, if you can feel something, the potentiality for that thing to be real is there. And even if it's not real, it's real because you've experienced it. Oh. If we can get people into a place of that revaluing their felt experience, which is, uh, in my personal opinion, sort of what... I'm, I'm a, like a Denverist metamodernist. And so the the core of Denverist metamodernism is that felt, uh, what we know is what we feel. Uh-huh. Um, and so if we can reincorporate the importance of felt sense knowing into our culture and our practices, I think we're going to um, we're going to see more coins turning, so to speak, and 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 more experiences like the one that you're describing, Greg, um, will we'll just dis- we'll be coming out of the shadows just be able to discuss them more and normalizing them and and i think that 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 the in order to avoid going off the deep end we need to be jumping off together if that makes sense we need mm-hmm. like an intersubjective framework that validates these crazy experiences that we have we normalize them we can contain them if we normalize them we can contextualize them if we normalize them um So thank you for sharing that. That's fucking awesome.
3: (laughs) Well, that's beautiful. And certainly speaking from, so, you know, I I can place my science hat on, right? Uh, You know, and uh, I pull out my little tree of knowledge and like, well, I can track all this and like, I don't know how to make sense out of that. The science, this attitude at the core philosophy of science, in my view, is agnostic. Okay, and and essentially committed to an anti-foundational agnosticism. In other words, science is always open to potential revision. Uh, It's a database structure. We don't know what the you know you don't you don't get revelation of God. You have some notion. It gives us some interesting constraints that makes it that I think is important to be, if we're going to jump, let's jump together. Let's also keep science as a constraint uh, in terms of like, well, this really is troublesome if you start drawing. A bungee
0: cord. <laughs> yeah, you need a bungee cord. You need,
3: if, if you If Like the tree of knowledge is like it's continuous. You start putting shit that doesn't, you know, that has no continuity and said, well, okay, this force came out of nowhere and did this thing and it doesn't communicate at all with any other forces. I mean, we get this with Rene Descartes and you're like, well, that's really hard. Now we're going to give up any kind of descriptive metaphysical coherence if we do that. And that's a big deal. So we want to be very careful about that. But but we've overpaid attention to that. We can have the constraint and recognize there are other ways of being in the world that we shouldn't be skeptical about at the level of like, oh, that's a, there's no valid epistemology there. Bullfucking fucking shit. How do you think people lived in the world from before science? They had a valid epistemology, a pragmatic, subjective, valid epistemology that did all sorts of beautiful things in the world. Okay, it's a different kind of epistemological justification, but it has all. It, 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 it. You know, science doesn't tell you to go home and like, okay, this is how you say this to your wife. I mean, that's not what science does. Your subjective experience of being does. And there's all sorts of ways to cultivate that kind of knowledge. And we better be, I've been, I speak of myself as a scientist, I got trained, it's way constraining and arrogant and narrow. It didn't appreciate its own limitations. It overshot in relationship to what it said. And it constrained the development of say, if you want to do an Ian McGill, Chris, you know, right hemisphere stuff. You want to do John Verbeke, perspectival, procedural, and participatory knowing. You know, For me, there's an entire wisdom stack that's been opened up uh, across multiple different language fields that can be in much greater resonance. And science is just singing one of the tunes, an important one, but not the whole damn thing. And there, it's been drowning out. I think this is basically Wilbur's point as well. has been drowning out a hell of a lot of our other potential intelligences. Um, and we need to wake up to them, for sure.
5: Who oh, me oh, Who ain't trying to do
2: Seems like there's a um, there's a scientifically extended notion of conventional statistics and probability that we uh-huh. all sort of have. Right, and, and that may undergo changes in the future, right? David Deutsch, Stephen Wolfram, people have some significant arguments about why we might be misperceiving what probability is. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, we have a sense in which a lot of things are possible and we are filtering the possible to produce salience that we're doing that in an unconscious manner. And the way we're doing that could be more or less significant. It could give us more or less agency. And I'm really curious about the way that that can potentially function at higher levels of the stack, because we sort of have this idea that, OK, we've got these unconscious things, but those are the lower levels. And here uh-huh. we are at the top of the stack, a conscious waking adult personality in a society.
4: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but
2: that's not the only thing that's up here, right? <laughs> but even at this level, most of me is unavailable to myself, doing all kinds of processing and all kinds of agency that I can't track. So at every level of the stack, I have to be able to uh, avail myself of some other possibilities that allow the rest of me to be a perceiver and an agent at this level of sophistication.
3: Hold on. Uh, And to me, that's that's the right attitude of a coherent, integrated, pluralistic embodiment that each one of us are and then need to be placed in relationship. Uh, and so we need, and that's the that's the meta modern sort of sensibility. Is this openness? Is there some constraint in relationship to it? a particular type of inclusion? A recognition of underdeveloped aspects of being that we're trying to cultivate in. Recognition some of the dangers of that. Um, but if we constrain and open with with you know, with sort of guardrails, and then create the attitude or embrace the attitude or cultivate the attitude that you're articulating. I, I completely agree. that's the uh, the right sensibility, the right kind of participatory identity we should be entering in these fields with.
0: I'd like to um, shift the conversation a little bit towards the practice of ritual um and the theory of theories of ritual if that works for y'all because I'm curious Greg how ritual practice lands um on the sort of the stack of matter life mind culture um I know about it mostly on the level of culture and then a little bit on the level of of life in terms of like how uh, our rituals connect us to say cycles of uh, the earth so that we can uh, feed ourselves and and know how to feed the earth properly, um, as well as right, things like rites of passage and rites of affliction, which are more psychological tools but also tools of attunement um, to attune to the, to the collective body of the say the tribe or the collective body of the biosphere uh, I'm sorry, the, I meant the bioregion, um, but I'm curious how these, uh, you know, how different genres and characteristics of ritual can kind of be enfolded in or can be recognized in the matter life, energy, matter, life, mind, culture, um, sort of stacking of things. So are you willing to say a little bit about that?
3: Oh, yeah, I'd love to. Um... I mean, first, I'll just, you know, at, the, at, a, at a propositional level, I can go point to John, John's work on ritual uh, and the opening up, of course, the four Ps and recursive relevance realization uh, and the centrality of that, both for individuals and for collectives, is part of our transcendent naturalism conversation. Uh, and and the the utility, the meaning, the underdevelopment of ritual, and the looking at ritual, and to pull in ritual to create collective intelligences. So that's uh, you know I've considered myself adjacent to John and tied we woven in with him, and he's got a lot of really uh, refined and sophisticated things to say about that. So I'll just point to that. Okay. Um, the the second thing that I'll say in terms of what happened, as as you know, in terms of my own personal life. Uh, one of the things that I was missing in my uh, current, you know, my marriage and my kids was we weren't, our belief value propositional stuff and our embodiment was off key. We weren't we weren't living wholly, okay, as far as I was concerned. And that was all part of the meaning crisis and all this other stuff. Um, and I was much more salient to that than I think, you know, my wife and my kids were. But from my vantage point, the, we had failed to... Because sort of the meaning crisis, because the chaos of the normal capitalism, there's just a fragmented, broken lifestyle that isn't coherently integrated. And then, of course, I get hooked up with Masia. Uh Masia loves Utah. And then we start living together. And then they, we build this Utah monastery uh, before she gets deported by <laughs> brilliant and individuals that could know that she's a danger of the United States security. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a whole other story. that's <laughs> that for ritual? Um, but in the context of that, as you know, we started living this. Uh, so here's some rituals that we developed. We developed a belief value mantra called the Utah Credo. Every morning, um, we pick a cre- a belief, uh, a value, and a mantra uh, that we that we're then going to live by uh, today. Okay, uh, so today's mantra is "I shall hold logos, pathos, mythos, and ethos in right relation." Uh, so, that, so that's a, you know give me an idea of like, hey, how do I hold this? And that's just one example. Another example that emerged in terms of you asked about the stack, uh, and we shared on this, but I'll just reiterate it, because this has been by far the most meaningful ritual, if you want to frame it that way. It doesn't come like with boxed ritual, although there's some, but it's the theory of the week that we developed. okay. Um, and, and so today's Mind Animal Day, okay. Uh, and the mantra for Mind Animal Day is toggle between self and awareness. Uh, the discipline is psychology. Uh, we think about animal-mindedness in terms of tomorrow's culture person day. Um, activate calm MO, be a reflective person, try to be wise. The next day is God Moon Day. And, and the, the universe is building its complexification. It's a, it's a, a top-down view. And then on Monday, it dies and disappears and becomes void darkness day. Um, And then it rebirths again on Tuesday and energy information and then matter object day and then life organism and then we'll be back here a week from now. Um, And every day when Masi and I wake up, we say, hi, happy um, mind animal day. And what's happened to me and what, what I find in that is what I felt like sort of, I guess I was missing. It was like my entire system is living this in a particular way. okay? and it manifests itself like I am definitely grumpier and more irritable on Mondays. <laughs> bad shit's happened to me, and it's just sort of like, yeah, fucking Monday. So I'm pissed and a little grumpy. And then I wake up on Tuesday now, and it's like, okay, I've got new opportunities for rebirthing. I sort of went into my darkness. I allowed some of that to be metabolized. I gave myself freedom. You know, you don't always have to be some goddamn sage. You can kind of go around and be grumpy for a little while, especially if bad shit's been happening to you and some bad shit's been happening to me. And it's like, huh, okay. So for me, what I have seen, at least as I've embraced the Utah structure from the science side then into the humanities, into the lived world, is this need to weave or this inclination, this drive, and what feels very healthy to weave in these worldviews into our practices, into our relationships, into the rhythms of the week, the cycles of time, and all of that. And I think that many... You know, societies have historically just known that intuitively and built enormous amounts of ritual into their world. And I think our modern society just broke that in many ways, at least. And I'd love to rediscover it. You know, one of the things The Monstrous also
2: points to is the unintelligible. And is there some way in which the patterns we can't track are nonetheless workable? Um, Things that can't be compressed into the, the conscious foyer of the left brain. Uh, And there may be a way that we can uh, invoke things that we can't name, that we can use symbols we don't know about, that we can speak a language that we can't decipher, that we can make gestures whose significance we don't understand, but which we can nonetheless get better at. I think that's one of the things magic points to is the potential that there's not just a an occult body of knowledge that we don't have but an aspect of reality that is occulted to all of us oh. but but just because we can't know it doesn't mean we can't do it better oh. so scout's going to ask an empty question <laughs> there might be a way for me to give an empty answer <laughs> but- <laughs>
0: well i wanted to i i wanted to ask you about uh oh now i remember um Maybe we can talk a little bit about the four uh themes of the course and how that kind of ties into what Greg was speaking about in terms of uh his and his partner Masya, um, their everyday spiritual practices, which are aligned with U talk, but ultimately get at this deeper layer of of what it means to be human instinctually and uh intuitively, relationally. That's kind of what I got from what you were sharing, Greg. No, totally. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was that ritual practice exists on all the all of the levels, the energy, matter, life, mind and culture. Well, maybe maybe not energy, but maybe <laughs> uh, matter, life, mind and culture. We can kind of uh, locate different aspects of ritual along each of those lines. And I wanted to see how that ties into the practices and the themes of the course that Lehman and I are doing. So okay. Lehman, maybe you can talk a little bit about your two modules and then I, I can go ahead and talk about mine.
2: Yeah, I think uh, ritual fits uh, nicely with your pilgrimage model, even though the whole thing's going to have a bit of a ritual structure to it. Uh, So we're doing four, and Scout's going to do two, and I'm going to do two. The two that I want to focus on are uh, entities and lineages.
4: Hmm.
2: And there's some really interesting things around that, like um, the mode of relating to reality as if there were entities there, Mm -hmm. which goes back to animism even though we've made uh, a number of really interesting mm, discoveries and emergent forms of thought over history that tell us, okay, maybe that and that and that are not really best conceived of as entities. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, the the utility of the entity mode is much richer than we mm-hmm. previously thought. Mm-hmm. And I think it goes beyond something like a, a Martin Buber suggestion that we can access the Judeo-Christian sacred through the I-thou, Uh, framing. Uh There's like this much broader Uh pagan, indigenous, shamanic, multifarious, ultra diverse range of all kinds of different relational qualities Uh that we could be looking Uh at. And like I was saying a moment ago, to me, one of the most interesting ones is the notion, the possibility that there could be unintelligible entities, Uh right? And whether we think of that as in a Stephen Wolfram sense, some other part of the pattern universe that we just couldn't possibly compress into patterns, or whether we think of it as just some strange aspect of the evolved capacity of the human Uh psychoorganism, whereby we can do some kind of relating to our own environment as if it was completely unknown to us. Uh I think we need to take that more seriously. Uh And when we look at things like the question of whether the American government has some special knowledge or not about Mm -hmm. extraterrestrials, only some of the people are really looking at that question. A lot Mm -hmm. of the rest of us are going, oh, yeah, that question of the unknown nature of anomalous entities again. We've been facing that question for a long time. And is there something we should know about that? Is there a (laughs) way of getting better at standing in front of that feeling that we've had before? Right. Oh. So that's some of the stuff I want to get into in the entities section, in the in the lineage section. One of the things I think that's really pertinent is: do the Hermetic and occult lineages have anything to tell us about bringing forward a religion that's not a religion? Oh. So you can do a story and go, "Hey, we had shamanism as the dominant form of human religion for a hundred, two hundred thousand years, and then we got a couple thousand years in which you overlaid civilization on that. Uh-huh. Sometimes it flourished." Other times it got suppressed and it kind of got split. So you got a surface level spirituality and religion and you got this underground spirituality Uh and religion Uh as a kind of countercultural movement that attracted, Uh you know, sex, cults, magic, uh, anybody who wanted to try alchemy, anybody who wanted to try forbidden science experiments, Uh all that kind of stuff was there. And Uh is there a way to bring that back together now is Uh an important question. Uh But while that was occurring, especially in the last, say, 500 years since the time of the Renaissance, there have been in Europe and then in America these uh, fraternities, these networks, these oh. semi available occult fraternities. Uh-huh. And they've done some things we want the religion that isn't a religion to do, right? Uh They've been transcultural, they've been intuitive and scientific,
4: Uh
2: Um, they've been able to persist. These lineages have done some things right and they've done some things wrong, and we need to learn from both of those. Uh The things they've done right are a lot of the things we're still trying to figure out in new wisdom movements. Mm -hmm. How do you get intergenerationality? How do you get transcultural? How do you get evocativeness? How do you survive under different kinds of social regimes? That kind of stuff. They've actually been pretty good at that in some cases. Mm -hmm. They've also um, gone off the rails in a lot of cases. You know, Madness, orgies, sex cults, poisoning, weird hierarchies, selling out, all this kind of stuff has occurred as well. So when we're looking at how do we move forward on this, we have to be taking them very seriously, these lineages, as sources of information we can learn from in terms of what went well. And also mm-hmm. what would probably happen to us if we don't learn from it, which mm-hmm. is all kinds of predictable disasters that have recurred frequently in mm-hmm. new wisdom movements.
3: Huh. Lovely. I love the uh, entities and lineages. That's excellent. Sweet. And your two
0: scouts. All right, so the two that I am going to be leading are Pilgrimage and Influence. So Pilgrimage will focus on transjectivity, the nature of movement, and uh, the nature of self in ways that... Um, you know, at least from what I know of, 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 culture, uh, in the Americas, in the West, as they say, um, there's a lot of focus on either individuality or communion, but there's not a lot of, um, focus on oscillation between or inhabiting between and pilgrimages, uh, has like are a particular type of ritual in which I would argue, um, you become place as opposed oh. to going to a place. Oh. And so uh, we're going to be focusing on sort of what happens. I also see place as an event. You right. can also see place as a hyper object. Uh, and, you know, what do pilgrimages teach us about the nature of objects, about the nature of um self the individual and also the nature of systems mm. uh so we're going to be doing some storytelling practices around that mm-hmm. uh and then the second one very fun very dangerous we're going to be talking about influence uh and the we will be meditating on the nature of power the relationship between power and fear mm. and uh the relationship between power and responsibility or what i would actually refer to as stewardship so Mm -hmm. there's a relationship between influence and uh pilgrimage as as we're going to be discussing it uh in this course in the sense that uh stewardship is often something that we gift to place or that someone Mm -hmm. gifts to us um and finally you know looking at the body as a place (laughs) Mm -hmm. and looking to the body as um an expression of 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 power that lies beyond it. And so I'm really excited to, you know, do storytelling practices, do somatic um, practices around these things and see what comes up.
3: That's lovely. Hey, that's great. I love the um playoff of both of those or the intersection of the pilgrimage and the influence uh and then the the dualities between the two of you. The, you guys are laying out some pretty cool stuff. Uh, I'll have to say, of course, you know, everything's you talk for me. So, like, the influence matrix, by the way, you know, is essentially, I, I, when I think about that, I think ever since I learned about, you know, layman's, uh, and, and Bruce's work on the metaphysics of adjacency, uh, and, and prepositional knowing and whatnot, um, I I see the influence matrix essentially everywhere in some ways. Uh, And so hearing, you know, finding our resonance, finding our, there's the power dynamic influence, of course, love is influence. You can, you do all sorts of pull away and creating influential resonances, ripples across uh, the energy information, space, time uh, structure of influence as some of the associations that I had. And then I had that ripple. I was like, Oh, a ripple on a pilgrimage. And then you're finding yourself, you know, uh, through that. And what's the magic of all that? Uh, uh that's lovely.
2: Yeah. Pilgrimage often comes up for me when I reach for examples of the integration surplus model, huh. uh, because there's a, it's a very straightforward thing to understand if you're going to undertake a physically challenging thing, like, Oh, you have to crawl on your knees up to the top of this volcano in order to get the magic blessing power. You're like, All right. So that's going to be physically challenging, but you don't just have to do that. You've got to repeat this mantra the whole time. OK, so there's a comparable intellectual effort you have to undertake and you have to do it with a certain kind of um, aspirational or devotional. Um, affect in yourself Uh at the same time, Uh right? So you're not told that you have to do these three things simultaneously, but they're Uh built into the structure of the suggestion. Uh And if you can pull that off, I think that's one of the reasons why pilgrimages have often been so successful in accomplishing transformative miracles or other kinds of magical changes in the Uh physiology or in the Uh meaning-making of the individual. Uh And then all of this takes place within, but then reinforces a particular imaginal and symbolic horizon of meaning. So in terms of solving meaning crises as Mm. well, Mm
4: -hmm. these
2: sort of pilgrimage enactments by individuals and then by groups have this amazing power to really flesh out and secure a Mm. world-making capacity. So that's one of the things I like about pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. When it comes to influence, I think of a lot of this through the lens of hypnotherapy and through trance induction mechanisms. Mm. Right, And so that's an area where there's a lot of interesting considerations, both about the mechanism of how it works, Mm -hmm. particularly when there's neurophysiology thrown into the question of what's the mechanism, Mm -hmm. but also in terms of the ethics and the care that we have to bring into shaping experience and reality. Mm. Um, Because a lot of the things you do in magic and a lot of things we do in this course where we're saying hey, there's all this open adjacent possible liminal space. Mm -hmm. There's this extra dimension of the unknown and all the things we're doing. We're going to invite your subconscious meaning-making agency to come to the fore. Those are things you also do in trance induction when you try to put somebody into a trance. Mm -hmm. And it's not bad for people to go into trances. It's good for them to go into trances, but you have to take care around that because Mm -hmm. then they are suggestible Uh, And they're also getting in touch with elements of themselves that they don't want to access too quickly.
4: Mm -hmm. So I think Mm -hmm.
2: that the ethics around influence is something we should really get into, Mm. but also the mechanism, which I see as um, something that's not too difficult to lens in an E. McGilchrist sense. Mm
4: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: I very often think that a lot of the uh, trance induction mechanisms, which play a big role in ritual, are Sort of pointing the left brain at the right brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've got one one lens that targets specified meaning and mm-hmm. another that opens up to unexpected patterns, mm-hmm. if you say, Hey, let's specifically target unspecified meaningfulness, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. there's a kind of balanced threshold condition, mm-hmm. which no proof of this, but in my fantasy. That's the normal waking state of our the archaic ancestor, and one mm. of the reasons they could engage so magically and so participatorily in their environment is they might have had a different kind of left right and balance mm-hmm. than the one we've had for the last few thousand years.
3: Yeah. Huh. And these modules, uh, what's the basic structure? A couple of episodes on each one, one per one. Do you guys have a? Is it open? Uh, what do you, do you have a sense of the course structure that way? I'm curious.
2: Yeah, the course structure is uh, we we recorded a conversation on the nature of magic. Okay. Um, So that's the first part. Then we've each got two theory modules, which Mm. are going to be recordings that are available. Mm -hmm. Then there's going to be four sort of practice sessions where we're both present, but we each take guide on two of them. Uh, Then an additional set of sort of social events for people to come together if they want to share their experiences or indulge and explore the topics without us doing all of the guiding. But what we also want to do in those sessions is have a lot of breakout rooms so people can start to familiarize themselves with each other on a Mm -hmm. Mm one-to-one or one-to-two kind of basis. Gotcha. Uh, So, yeah, that's the overall. Okay.
3: uh, Yeah, no, that helps.
2: And it's um, basically all of October uh, Ah. ending at Halloween. Okay. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds good.
0: Speaking of Halloween, what's interesting about, you know, the relationship between the modules that I'm doing and the modules that Layman is doing, um, or that at least in my end, on my end, I'm seeing a a huge, uh, overlap in regards to influence, pilgrimage and, um, lineage. Mm. Although entities also, I, uh, because most uh, animistic or, or indigenous or traditional frameworks have relationships with the dead in a particular way that um, the dead are now the monstrous in our sort of modern or uh. post-postmodern society. The dead, uh, like we have the undead or we have ghosts, but we don't have a relationship with uh, these dark beings as uh, as fully or as healthily as some, um, you know, indigenous and traditional cultures um once did and you know on pilgrimages oftentimes people have experiences where they they feel connected to uh the history of that land in synchronous ways i know coming in the carolinas uh, i'm currently in north carolina coming Mm -hmm. to the carolinas has been that way for me as someone who has a lineage um of people who uh settled somewhat near Appalachia and so um as far as lineage is concerned I'm really interested in the in the relationship between ancestor as entity uh ancestor as a leader of pilgrimage and ancestor as a as influencer or as uh you know influencing through uh connecting to one's lineage there's uh, for a lot of people who even in the post postmodern world are still very deeply connected to their roots and they can trace themselves back to shamans these people carry a terrifying power that Mm. often repels people Mm. um and often uh you know there's projection that this person might be dominating or crazy i've seen that happen a lot with people Mm. that i know and Mm. so if we can get communities to be willing to hold that degree of power uh, mm-hmm. within a person influence things like influence can be less dangerous. I think mm-hmm. we might see less tendency towards cult behavior mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. we're actually prepared to hold these things that we you know think are crazy, mm. such as the existence of like guardian spirits or ancestors mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. something along those lines. Mm-hmm. So yeah. That was a, a bit messy coming out, no, but
4: uh,
0: I think you <laughs> both get the idea. Well, well, we were messy coming in, and so it's messy. And, you know, oh, that works.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's something I love about that scout, which is, you know, uh, Tom and Mark, who sort of um, partially runs Parallax, who's uh-huh. doing they're doing this course. Um, we've had a lot of conversations, him and I, about causal and a causal magic, about the kind of magic where you try to make something happen versus where you're just sort of opening omnidirectionally to this kind of magical way of being in the world. And I think there's a huge role for that, um, for becoming kind of inhabitants of the magical realm collectively, to give us a security against the tactical use of this to manipulate us, mm. which is a big deal now because we have machine amplified processes yeah. of manipulating us, right. but it's always been a big deal, right? If there's one person in a group who's specially good at coincidences and other States and activating different parts of themselves, that can be problematic, but it's way less problematic if all the rest of us also have a lot of experience sort of breathing the air of that realm.
4: Uh-huh. Same uh-huh. thing
2: with trance is, if more people have had more experience going into trance, then the chances that you're going to get diluted by hypnosis of some kind, conscious or unconscious goes way down. Right. Um, So I'm mostly focused myself on that sort of a causal thing, but there's an element I wanted to come back to Greg on with sort of targeted magic. And it came up for me the other day because uh, I've put Thursdays aside. I don't do any interviews or any regular work. I'm just like, ah, housework, yard work. Right. Last uh-huh. Thursday, I'm going to fix this leak in the plumbing that's been uh-huh. there for six months. And I'm aware it's probably going to take all day. And it does uh-huh. Uh-huh. chart it out and draw it, right? You have an intention. You have your diagrams. You have your journeys. There's these ordeals back and forth. And then toward the end of the day, I'm getting really close to hopefully not destroying the entire house's plumbing <laughs> system. Um, all of a sudden, things start to vanish, right? I'm like, I can't find my headlamp. I look everywhere. Oh. It's gone. And these, th- And then... I very slowly got to search and search and find it and then something else seems like it's gone. It's like things are slipping out of my cognitive map. Uh. And I thought, oh, it's almost like they're being snatched away. It's almost like i am I've chosen a form of manifestation. I'm going to cause a spell to happen. I'm going to fix the plumbing. Uh. But I didn't make any sacrifice, right? I didn't uh. touch that <laughs> element of the monstrous. And oh. now something's trying to take something from me in exchange, which if I was a smarter magician, I would have offered something <laughs> up front, which is how the ancestors did
4: it. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> but I'm mm-hmm. curious mm-hmm. from your point of view, Greg, from the Utah point of view, how you think about the, um, the perception of the world as a field of transaction because there's something about magic and there's something about sacrifice which which is a way of being in the world modeled on a transactional framework.
3: Right. Yeah, well, I mean again, I would for me what I would say is we want to be opening ourselves up to different participatory modes um and that would be, you know, the the, the transactional engagement I think is a is an extension or mode of 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 you know, basically being in reciprocal relation. Uh, to, and and opening ourselves up, I'm going to take. I'm going to give. I'm going to. This is go, this is going to come into my system, and this is going to be eliminated from my system. Uh, in relationship to that, I think enacting those kinds of modes and and th- those are, those have to be. I mean, behavioral investment theory basically says, hey, you're an investment value system engaged in transactional exchange across a wide variety of different domains. Uh, uh, layers and stacks of, of being uh, so for me what that does is that that brings this you know unknown but I think enormously rich potentially uh enormously rich uh, way of identifying one's uh sort of agent arena uh, iterativeness uh, if that's a word um in a way that feels that that you could play around with and do all sorts of different kinds of you know sort of intuitive pathic mythic kinds of uh, modes of being around, for sure. I don't know if that, those those are sort of loose associations in relation, in a messy sort of way, but uh, mm-hmm. I think it, it, to the bottom line, is it jives with a number of vibes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was well put um, at, towards the end there. I have a, a similar story in regards to sacrifice, which, you know, let's go there. Um I was in the woods uh, last weekend doing um, a sort of ritual practice retreat uh, with with Josh Rye of the Emerald Podcast and some of his other students, and we were instructed to listen in the woods. And so we went us uh, in, into the woods and around the the property and just speaking to things, just being in space with things and 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 seeing what comes up. And um, as someone who uh, already does this practice a lot and sometimes ends up, you know, bringing the voices back with me, I was a little, <laughs> I was a little like, I don't know if I want to do this right now. Um, but I was walking and just listening and um, came upon a clear boundary. Like I could, I could just feel uh, visually, aesthetically, it felt closed off and, 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 um, somatically, uh, spatially, it felt, you know, like there was a barrier there. And hmm. so, you know, I heard a voice in my head say, um, in order to go further, in order to, to cross this boundary, you must offer a sacrifice. Um, and I thought about it. And, I, you know, I've been reading a lot about sacrifice, uh, particularly in preparation for this course. Mm. Um, but also just because it's it's an interesting dynamic that I feel like a lot of people want to avoid because of what comes to mind when they think of sacrifice. Mm. Um, and I realized, you know, I thought of a practice that I came upon a couple of years ago um having to do with going to the water spirit and offering to the water spirit. And mm-hmm. the practice goes, go to the wa- water spirit and offer it your grief, offer it your sorrows, mm-hmm. your anger, all of the things that you think aren't worth anything because you've been suppressing them, feed those to the water spirit. So, you know, as I'm in the woods, I'm like, I've decided to feed something that I no longer need inside of myself to This and I could feel everything just kind of open after that, and so you know, interpretively, I like to keep things loose. I don't want to say that I was projecting my own psyche onto the woods because I, you know, even Jerome Bernstein, who coined the term transrationality, warns against uh, pigeonholing magical experiences like that into oh, it's a projection or it's trauma-based or it has something to do with some sort of pathology. I like to phrase it that I met a spirit in the woods because Mm -hmm. I like to honor the agency of. All beings even if those beings are complex systems or uh, Mm. complex biological systems that I'm interpreting through my imaginal they're still beings Mm. (laughs) Um, but you know we can sacrifice things that it doesn't have to be like a baby goat and Mm. I think people Mm. immediately think of something so extreme when they think of that because of the way that indigenous cultures have been pathologized for the past 200 years how, um, how we are always kind of uh, offering, you know, our, our, our presence is an offering. Our presence can be a sacrifice. Um, we can sacrifice physical objects that we no longer need in the first place. And, and sacrifice is really just a form of offering.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a
0: particular form of offering. And so if we start to frame it that way, um, you know, the transactional piece uh, sort of transforms into a devotional piece mm. uh, rather than, um, you know, focusing on the getting and get uh, giving mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, duality. We can we can just focus on what is flowing in and out, mm. um, because you mm. think of it as like you open your house you, when you throw things away, mm. you create space in your house. Hmm. for more shit for, so you can hoard more <laughs> shit later you know um that space is always dying to be filled and um this really i think reframes the concept of sacrifice in an hmm. important way
3: hmm. that's lovely so did you after you Ribley, did that perspective okay. on sacrifice hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Did you actually enter the space then after? Did you actually then give an act of that? Okay, cool.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm really curious um, about the role of intensity and the mm, potential of pre-trans fallacies to get involved in the notions of sacrifice, right? that I think um, where people have been pathologized and where individuals have a, a trauma or something that they have to deal with, very often there's this sense in which Maybe if you hurt yourself enough, you could either fix something that went wrong in the past or get out ahead of being hurt in the future, Mm -hmm. right? And so those programs are built into us, and we don't want to get stuck in those. We do want to elevate it to a more complex dynamic of devotional offering and an understanding that you are... um, transfiguring your relationship to things and your perception of things through the act of sacrifice and the act of opening space but mm. we make also want to make sure we don't get caught into a um, a model of sacrifice that's a little bit too nice and comes out of being an extremely nice part of world history right now mm-hmm. and there may be something in the 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 monstrosity of it right the awfulness of the notion of sacrifice of Mm. what would it take from me to actually slit that baby goat's throat Mm -hmm. we may not want to actually do that but touching that threshold of the monstrous i think is important to keep in the conversation of sacrifice Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: Hmm. Mm -hmm. that sounds i look forward to those modules (laughs) (laughs) Run, baby goat. Matter of fact, I'm killing a baby goat right Right. now. Speaking of that.
2: Are we done? How would we even know? We don't even know what this is.
3: boundaries on this thing. This thing, <laughs> it, it bleeds into the future. It bleeds into the past. It bleeds between us. You know, eventually, <laughs> you know, something will happen, but here it is. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate you guys um, uh, joining me in this conversation and giving me a window into this upcoming course. Uh, I really uh I got a lot out of the conversation and uh, appreciated sharing a little bit from a Utah worldview, this intersection, for sure. Beautiful.
0: Mm -hmm. Utah's compatibility with traditional magic has always fascinated me. Mm -hmm. And I hope that we continue to explore those parallels because it's uh, some wild shit (laughs) to be be perfectly frank about it. And, you know, thank you, Greg, for bringing us on
3: amen
2: yeah an approach to the natural sciences that embraces that which is uh fucking insane uh that's a really sweet spot to be in and it helps us coordinate our attempts to go to the
3: very edges of things as well so yeah thanks greg all righty <laughs> love you guys <laughs> good luck with the course and take care
0: Thank you for listening to Magic, the Clusterfuck of Everything There Is, with Layman Pascal and Dr. Greg Henriquez. If you are interested in the Teratogenic Mystique, Eldritch Wonders Ritual Becoming in the Age of Unreality, The Unified Theory of Knowledge... The Metaphysics of Adjacency or the work of Josh Shry, creator of the Unruled Podcast, or any of the other things we may have discussed in this conversation, please check out the links in the show notes. I promise they will not lead you astray. Stay tuned for next month's episode, which I keep saying is going to be next month's episode, but then I keep lying to you guys, so I apologize for that. But this time, I promise Rachel Hayden on Queer Phenomenology, it's coming out at the end of next month, so stay tuned. This final song might be familiar to you if you grew up watching Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It is performed by none other than the illustrious and incomparable Fiona Apple. Ladies, gentlemen, and otherwise, pure imagination.